Welcome to Seeds, a weekly show where we talk purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We're particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Welcome everyone, this is Stephen Mo speaking. Today we've got Netta Egos on the show, and she is a social enterprise lawyer. And that's appropriate because next week is the Social Enterprise World Forum being held here in Christchurch, New Zealand. She's now working with Petra Kucha, based in Tokyo, Japan. So we'll find out about that too. Here's an extract from our conversation. I think a lot of people who start a business, their motivation is money. But people who start a social enterprise, their motivation is values. And it's really fun to see that light in their eyes as you talk to them about what their purpose is, why they want to do what they do. And then just to solve those, iron out those kinks around, well, how can you make it sustainable? Because we can't expect everyone to be commercially minded. But I think our obligation as people who are commercially minded and you know, values motivated is to provide those tools for those people. Now, on the next episode, we're going to be talking with Leanne Dalzell, the mayor of Christchurch, and she has some really good things to say about purpose and Christchurch post-earthquake. So if you don't want to miss that episode, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. And if you find the content helpful, then share it with other people. Now let's dive into the interview with Netta. So I'm really pleased to be able to welcome Netta Egos here today. Thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure. Now, your title is the executive director of Pecha Kucha. That's correct. And you're based in Tokyo. I am. So you're lucky to catch me. Yeah, I just got you as you flew in and flew out. I think you're on your way to Chicago. Yes, I've been in town for a week, lapping up all the social enterprise goodness that we have here and heading back out and then back into town in time for the Social Enterprise World Forum, which I'm very excited about. If we could back up and go through where you've come from, a bit of your journey so far. Um, that would be really great to hear. Sure. So uh, my journey, journey is, hasn't been that long, but probably filled with quite a lot of things. Um, I grew up in Christchurch, but I was actually born in Israel, so that's where the name comes from. And uh, I'm a child of an academic, so we moved around a lot. I grew up in the States on the West Coast for a few years, and we moved to New Zealand where I went to school. Um, and since I've sort of finished school uh, in between law school, I lived in France and in Melbourne and obviously now Tokyo. But recently, three or four years ago, I made Littleton my home base, bought a nice little house there facing the ocean. And that's where I come back to you know, oh, catch my roots. Great. That's a beautiful place, isn't it? I've I always thought it was like a mini Wellington. Yes. All the best bits because you've got the ocean. Um, but a small community as well. Yeah, you got yeah. the hills, the sea, and you're not many bureaucrats. <laughs> That's yeah. good. And so growing up with so many diverse places that you lived, um, did you have a sense of identity or culture? Um, I only ask because I'm similar to you and mm. I moved a- around a lot as a child. Was that something that you sort of grew up with an identity or was it moving and, and adopting from different places you were going? I think you'll probably understand this. I think you you get your New Zealand identity when you leave New Zealand. But when you're in New Zealand, you feel like perhaps you're different from everyone else. Mm. And I was a child of migrants. We didn't speak English at home. Well, I my parents, you know, didn't speak English to each other. We ate different food. We grew up in a very conservative neighborhood in Christchurch in the 90s where 
olive oil was exotic and the only foreign food you could find was Chinese takeouts from the fish and chip shops. So I felt very different then, but having left New Zealand now, I identify very strongly as a Kiwi and it is an immense sense of pride for me. And when I come home, uh, actually, as soon as I got off the plane, I went straight to Queenstown and got up in the mountains. And for me, coming home is about having that natural environment. And that's where I recharge. And that's where I, you know, find my place of belonging, even though New Zealand is not where I was born. And many people ask me, where's home? And I say New Zealand. And then they say, but where were you born? Mm. I don't think that necessarily dictates what is home. Mm. So I think... I feel very lucky now, um, not so much when I was an angsty teenager, but now I feel very lucky to have grown up in that diverse background and to have a, a wider world perspective. But at the time, perhaps I wanted to fit in a bit more. But now I definitely feel like I am a Kiwi and I think there are many in my generation who have grown up like me and there is a generation of Kiwis that perhaps they're children of migrants or they lived overseas Uh, And I think that's a wonderful thing about this country is, you know, we are a melting pot in a way, not as much as many other countries and we could do better. But I think we are very lucky to, anyone who gets to live here is very lucky to call this place home. There's a diversity of experience here, isn't there? Yeah. In terms of people who've come, maybe their parents brought them as children or they were born here, but their parents are from overseas. I know for me, um, we first moved to New Zealand when I was seven years old. So it was... Same age as me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we moved down near Amaru mm. um, in a tiny, tiny town called Papakayo. And um, it's one of those blink and you miss it type of places. Um, but it was a wonderful experience as a child to grow up there for a couple of years and then move to Christchurch. But in my case, my accent means that people are always questioning, well, where are you, where are you really from? Yeah. You know, so it is hard. And just thinking about um, when you went overseas... And you said that sort of firmed up your identity as a New Zealander. What were some of the things that that caused that to form or caused that to happen? What was it that made you realize that's home? Part of it is people overseas have no perception of what a Kiwi is. So when they ask me where I'm from or they hear my accent, aside from thinking I'm Australian, oh, New Zealand, yeah, that's great. They don't question, are you really Kiwi? Mm -hmm. Um, Part of it is also, I mean, I have a very strong emotional connection to the land here to the landscape to being in nature and I think because it is not as accessible in many other cities all of a sudden I you know I feel that is part of my identity and that is very uniquely New Zealand um I think also i choose to identify as a New Zealander because I'm quite proud of this country and I'm not a patriotic person but I think on a global level we have a lot to be proud of we also have a lot to be ashamed of but I think we have an attitude that we're willing to improve and if I look at some of the rhetoric of some of the big you know nations uh, the superpowers in our modern geopolitical environment I actually like the humbleness of New Zealanders And so I feel really lucky to identify as a New Zealander. But also, I mean, I spent, you know, 70% of my life in this country. My citizenship is in this country. I have contributed to the community in this country. And so there is nowhere else that I would call home more just because I wasn't born here. So you may go overseas, you may travel, you may live in other places, but ultimately this is the place you think you'll come back to. I hope so, Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, I... 
bought some property here a few years ago so that I have somewhere to come back to in Littleton. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I really, that is home for me regardless of where I end up. But you never know, things change. But I'd like to think, at least if we have a nuclear holocaust, I can hide out here. (laughs) Littleton will welcome you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So um, just take us through, we talked about your childhood and growing up here in Christchurch. Um, What happened next? Where did you go? Or um, did you stay here and and study at Canterbury or, or go elsewhere? Um, so I grew up out in Lincoln, which is sort of obviously about half an hour from the city, but I always was very engaged in the city centre and as a teenager would spend a lot of time in the city. Most of my friends went to city schools and I got very involved in community work through actually environmental activism. So from the age of 15, I helped set up my first charity, uh, which was the Youth Environmental Forum and it was across different schools around the city, young people who were interested in engaging in the environment. And at the time, um, I mean, this was sort of almost 15 years ago, that the climate change was still a new discussion. Mm-hmm. And I think many of those people have gone on to be founding members of Generation Zero. So it's, you know, their, their roots are still very much there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I mean, I continued to do community work through the city, through the environment and through performing arts. I also set up a charity to encourage young underage shows for young people so safe environments for young people to see live music Mm. uh, and worked in that community once I was 18 I moved uh, to Melbourne as most 18 year olds would want to do and worked for a year and a gap year actually worked in a law firm and then came back to Canterbury to go to law school here. Mm. So just pausing there for a minute, um, one of the things we do on this podcast is talk about the word purpose. Mm. Um, It sounds like you had quite a clear understanding from quite a young age, like 15. That's pretty young to be out there, you know, looking at charities and how can we make the world better and things. Is that some, what started that or what caused that at such a young age? I think it's a mixture of the values my parents brought me up with and a mixture of having a few good uh, teachers at school who engaged me. I was quite lucky to have a particular teacher who was very much motivated by environment. Perhaps her practices didn't resonate with me, but she connected me with the right people. And there are people who are still working with young people in the city now that I still occasionally cross paths with. That They were the first people to motivate me to get involved in activism. My sister actually was basically a professional activist for about 10 years. She lived in Wellington, which obviously had a much more established activist scene, but activism was sort of a normal thing in our family. I remember my first protest at the age of eight against anti-GE, you know, at the Lincoln uh, Research Centre and my parents taking me to that. So I did grow up around this idea that if you have a problem with the way things are, you can do something about it. And so I think by the time I had the resources to make change myself, I was very engaged. Mm, so you, you saw the example even at age eight to mm. go to a protest. Like, that's and not... politics were always discussed at the dinner table. Right. Yeah, I had that kind of family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just think, you know, to be young and to, to have a sense of, well, I can make a difference. You know, that's, that's an attitude that you don't just come across every day. So it's just good to break it down and work out, well, what was going on there? Yeah, and I hope more and more young people now see that they have that opportunity. I think this current election is showing us that. Mm. So I am more excited about seeing young people involved in that. Mm. Yeah. So you came back from Melbourne and you'd had an experience in a law firm. Was that part of the reason that you went to Canterbury and, and started studying 
Um, my journey with law is actually kind of a funny one in that I decided I wanted to be a lawyer at the age of nine. <laughs> and I remember when I was about 14 and you go through careers counseling at school and the teacher says, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I very confidently said, I'm going to be a lawyer. And he said, well, how long have you wanted to be a lawyer? And I said, five years. He goes, okay, you will be a lawyer. And uh, my motivations changed over the years. But uh, when I finished school, I decided to work in a firm to see what it was like. Hated it. Uh, but still somehow came back to law school for different motivations. I never wanted to practice law, but wanted to have the tools of the law to do more purposeful things. Mm. Um, That's I interesting because for me, like, so I studied law as well mm. at Canterbury, maybe a few years before you. But for me, I always had this picture in my mind that what I was getting was a key Mm. And the key would open doors that would remain locked mm. if I didn't have it. And yeah. I didn't know what the doors would be. And I didn't know what would be beyond the doors. But having the law degree would uh, teach me a way of thinking and that it would be a key to be able to open up opportunities. And so. do you think that was right? I think it was. Yeah. I agree. Because yeah. Yeah. my career, I've moved around a lot. And I never thought that's what would happen at the time I was studying and, yeah. and not enjoying, you know, second year and <laughs> third right. year. Um, but looking back, I think it was a big, uh, yeah, there's been huge opportunities have opened up. So yeah. y you found it worked that way for you as well? Yeah, I think I realized, especially now on the other side and having practiced for a few years, society was written by lawyers. And so lawyers do hold the key to how, you know, to the car. We understand the mechanics. And uh, most politicians have law degrees many CEOs have law degrees. My motivation was to take those keys and give them to a different sector, to the community sector. So I do think that we think in ways which are, um, I mean, I know coming out of law school, my brain is wired in a different way than going in. And I look at problems in a much more calm and analytical way. And I think the way our system is, works favors that sort of mindset. So. I think, you know, we trained ourselves to understand the key, you know, what are the rules of the game and now we can negotiate them better. Mm. And you had a vision for that quite early on, it sounds like, that mm. that was the reason you were doing it. Yeah, I, um, I mean, I went into university the year of the global financial crisis uh, and actually that year was a bumper crop of law entrance because no one could get jobs and so everyone went to university. But obviously, many of them filtered out during the years. Uh, but my prospects leaving university uh, after, obviously, Christchurch having an earthquake and not by any means rebuilt at that time were quite slim. Also, under the national government, you know, the public service sector had shrunken significantly. I originally wanted to go into diplomacy, international law, and uh, I don't think, I think MFAT had a freezing hire for about five years right. while I was at law school <laughs> and after. So that was crushed pretty quickly. Mm. And did that shaped the courses that you were studying at law school as well? Like, were you doing international type things? Yeah, and? my degree was almost exclusively in human rights and international law, mm. but I had a very clever guidance counselor who said, uh, don't put all your eggs in one basket, try a few commercial papers. Mm -hmm. I was very resistant, but oddly, those were my best grades. And that's when I realized that as much as I didn't think it, I was a contract lawyer at heart. That's how my brain works. That's what I'm good at. And later I was to learn that actually that's very useful because most lawyers in this field, in the social sort of community field, 
tend to be human rights lawyers and not contract lawyers, but everyone has to deal with contracts. Mm. So I managed to put my skills to good use. So for people who haven't studied law, and I think I know what you're talking about, but what, what is it that's different, do you think, between a contract lawyer and an, another type of lawyer, if you like? What are the skills that you're talking about? I think contracts, I find there's a lot of certainty in them. I mean, you, you literally put something on paper, it's words on paper, and uh, the skill for contract law is, is interpretation. Um, I think with many other types of law, there are many laws that govern the way they work. So if you go to court uh, as a criminal, there are many different acts and, and a lot of legislation to navigate that will dictate your outcome. With contract law, there are a few basic rules and then you make up the rules in the contract. And I really enjoy working in that field and navigating that field. And later I was actually an insurance lawyer during the uh, sort of height of the EQC dilemmas. And uh, I found that being able to create your own rules by negotiating contracts much more freeing than trying to litigate under legislation. Right, so rather than interpreting what something said, you're actually creating something new. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes it's interpretation of existing contracts, but I think writing a contract is the ultimate creativity for a lawyer. Uh, and I enjoy the idea of having to think ahead and uh, anticipate everything that could go wrong, but also learning from previous mistakes, looking at other bad contracts, and especially when you've been practicing for a few years and litigated other contracts, learned okay, this is not a sentence you should be writing. Mm. It sounds quite boring to someone who's not uh, a lawyer or a contract lawyer, but I think when you really get into it, there, there can be a lot of um, fun to be had. Yeah, well, I, the thing I love that is that you use the word creative and lawyer in the same sentence, so that's just done it for me. That's yeah. perfect. Because <laughs> that's definitely not the impression most people would have. But exactly. I, I obviously agree with you that there is huge scope for opportunity and particularly in the social enterprise space, which we're going to talk about. Um, yeah. And it's funny because being labeled as a creative lawyer is where I got to my role today, which we'll talk later. But uh, it's funny when they announced my appointment, they literally announced that they, they have a creative lawyer joining the ranks. And a lot of people said, wow, they outed you as a lawyer. I'm surprised because <laughs> many people didn't know I actually was a lawyer as right. well. So let's talk a little bit about that. So you've, you've finished law school. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing that you were volunteering and things and doing other things given the nature of what you said. So was yeah. that like community law, that type of thing? Yeah, I volunteer with community law. I also was volunteering with many of the what was known as the transitional movement. So projects like Gap Filler, FESTA, mm -hmm. all these sort of creative projects that were trying to engage people back with the city and create um, what I call the social architecture of the city. Mm -hmm. um, so finished law school, moved overseas back to Melbourne, mm -hmm. realised almost immediately that I didn't have purpose there because the social capital I built up here, the working to build, rebuild the city here. I mean, having lived through all the earthquakes myself, none of that counted there. And I didn't feel a desire to make that city a better place because it didn't need me like Christchurch needed me. And uh, also, I mean, just the minor technicality of a New Zealand law degree doesn't get you as far in Australia as it does here. So I'd come back here for my graduation and immediately started getting job offers and thought, hang on. 
Some, there's something, something. There's something here. Yeah, something yeah. is pulling me back. Yeah. So how long were you in Melbourne before you kind of had that realization? Was I it was, quite? It was there over the summer. It was four months. Okay. Yeah, and I was applying for jobs, and I was thinking, I was. I mean, there's there is need around um, asylum seekers, and I was volunteering in that field, mm-hmm. but it there were a lot of people who were you know, able to give help there. And I, I really saw a need in Christchurch. And I guess having come from Christchurch where you'd been so involved and contributing and actively, you know, getting your hands dirty, if you like, in organizations, it would have been quite a contrast to going yeah. to an already established city, beautiful city, but probably running quite smoothly. And yeah, uh, yeah. okay. Yeah. So you came back and... I came back. The day I flew back, I was offered uh, from the... Uh, existing Pachacucha Night Christchurch organiser, she was moving to Dunedin and she'd heard I was in town and immediately called me and said, do you want to be the organiser? And I'd been volunteering for Pachacucha during my uni days. I actually got involved by presenting about a project that I'd been working on with Architecture for Humanity uh, through a job. I used to work for a youth development trust and so I was very much in that community already. I got offered a house in Littleton and immediately felt at home there. And then, you know, a job fell into place as well. So I felt there was a lot for me to contribute. At the time as well, I was asked to be on the board of what is now known as Teputahi, the Christchurch Centre for Architecture and City Making. Uh, at the time, it was the Christchurch Transitional Architecture Trust, which produced FESTA, the biannual architecture festival. And uh, very shortly after, offered a few other things like Exchange Mm. Christchurch. I was on the founding board for that um, and also involved in Project Littleton. So various board memberships. Yeah, so there there was real opportunity to step into a role and and it was utilizing your skills as well, having trained to be a lawyer. Massively so. Everyone was eager to have a socially minded lawyer involved. And there are many lawyers in Christchurch that volunteer a lot of their time on boards. And I think in that sense, lawyers have very good regard in this city, but many of them do it as a hobby um, or because they want to give back. There is a culture of pro bono in mm. in law, but not many of them saw it as a professional goal. Right. Whereas I saw a real unmet need in uh, around the world, but especially here and wanted to somehow combine my two lives, my, my legal side and my social passion community organizer side. Mm. And so for that period um, that we're talking about kind of having arrived back, were you able to do that? Because it sounds like you, you know, we can't even, I need more fingers here. (laughs) There was many things you were involved in. Yeah, I just didn't have many free days. I really like being busy. They always say, you know, if you want something done, ask a busy person. So I was being asked to do a lot of things. Um, I was working full time at Community Law with the most insane workload I've ever experienced. 200 clients on the go, Mm. um, very emotional, difficult work dealing with people who had unresolved earthquake claims. Mm. Um, So that was the insurance side of things, was it? Yes, and and so I became uh, one of the sort of city specialists on earthquake insurance, residential earthquake insurance, which is very niche because most average homeowners can't afford lawyers and we were doing it for free right. government funded uh, but we became very specialist and we were meeting on a weekly basis with Sarah and EQC and MB's engineers and so and I was working closely with engineers learning all about construction and that set me up to also be a construction lawyer and yet you're it, it's more than just being a lawyer looking at contracts you've also got the emotional side of things yeah. because people's homes 
you know, they can't live there. What does this mean? You know, like I can imagine that was, it was more than it just a normal difficult. law yeah. job. <laughs> yeah, it was a very emotionally taxing. I enjoy people and that's why I became a lawyer was to help people and I felt like I was helping people, but it took away from my energy to do some of the projects I was more passionate about. Mm -hmm. And somewhere in the mix of all of that, I also bought my own house and was renovating it myself. <laughs> so it was uh, quite a lot. And at that point, I made the decision to move to private sector. Mm -hmm. um, and the largest impetus for that was I was able to then choose my client base as far as social enterprises and charities that I could help as long as I and I was also getting commercial skills which at community law I was you know there wasn't much investment in mm. so I was learning to navigate the commercial world to you know play with the big boys or the property developers and dealing with government and at the same time being able to then use those skills to help social enterprises and nonprofits. Mm. So let's just talk a little bit about social enterprises in Christchurch because you've been here right through from the earthquakes mm -hmm. and things. What was your take on, I guess, the scene here in Christchurch and, and how it's been developing and um, what you were observing of people in that space? Uh, Pre-quake, I wasn't really aware of much to do with social enterprise. There were a few, I think Kilmarnock Enterprises is sort of one of the veterans. Trade Aid was started in Christchurch. So there, there, there is sort of a, an old army of social enterprises, but at the time they weren't given that label. I think what Christchurch had was the need, which presented an opportunity. And there was a lot of issues and not enough resource because the government was obviously tied up with dealing with bigger picture mm. let's fix our roads um, and that's where people used enterprise to solve problems and that's where I get very excited is in those vacuums opportunity is created and then to see where people take that um, and so I, I've seen it grow exponentially and I've been involved with trying to foster that further as well. Mm. And what is it that you've enjoyed the most when you're talking with, at that time you were talking with people who'd come with a new idea? Yeah, it, just describe that maybe in terms of the energy that you got from that or why you enjoyed being involved in that sector. I mean, mostly I dealt with people who'd come from the community sector, the charitable sector, and had no idea about how to commercialize. And so I find it really exciting to talk to someone about their values find out at the root of it what are they trying to achieve and then look at a way that they can do that in a sustainable way. And I mean, I've had like a girl who wanted to start an art gallery and a property developer had kindly said he would let her use his empty building until he had tenants. And someone had said, you know, you should probably talk to Netta about how you can set yourself up. So just meeting her for two hours over a coffee and, and giving her the tools she needed she then had access to a lot of free resources I could point her to, but now she's on her third space and still going strong. And I'm attending one of her openings tomorrow, and that's really satisfying to see someone bring you a project in its infancy and then to see it several years on still on its legs. I think a lot of people who start a business, their motivation is money. But people who start a social enterprise, their motivation is values. And it's really fun to see that light in their eyes as you talk to them about what their purpose is, why they want to do what they do. And then just to solve those, iron out those kinks around, well, how can you make it sustainable? Because we can't expect everyone to be commercially minded. But I think our obligation as people who are commercially minded and, you know, values motivated is to provide those tools for those people. That's that's really great because I think you're right. People often have the the vision or the the purpose 
like they're clear about that, but then they don't know what the structures are that they should do. I always feel like if you can help to empower somebody with knowledge that they then go out and help, you know, 1,000 people, I certainly sleep better knowing that I helped that person because otherwise what would they have done, you know? Exactly, and I think that's also, I mean, it's about playing to your strengths. I have some ideas and I would love to make, changes in society but I'm also one person and I burn out and uh, I'm aware that I also have a lot of skills and knowledge that many people don't have and I'm much more effective in providing other people with that knowledge than trying to do it myself. Mm. Yeah well it sounds like um, well throughout your life you've been very busy and that that period continued and then, so Petra Kucha, let's just talk a little bit about that. Mm. That was continuing on the side as well. You were running that here in Christchurch. Yeah. So I was running four events a year. Petra Kucha tracked the social rebuild of the city. So we were a space for creatives to come and present about what they were doing. We had regular events that people looked forward to. We were always popping up in new buildings that were just reopening. Um, we were sort of the go-to place when people wanted to see what was happening in the city. And it was really satisfying to be able to track how the city was going. If you watch previous presentations, in the early days it was dreaming about the rebuild and then it was people talking about projects they wanted to get off the ground and then people reflecting on projects they got off the ground. And so it's really wonderful to have that archive. You saw the whole sort of life journey of some of these projects right from the beginning, the dreaming to the actual reality. Definitely. And some of my closest friends now are people who I met because they wanted to present at Apache Kucha Night. Mm. I worked with them on how they could tell their story. I saw their talk. We stayed in touch. I supported them through other ways. Mm. And, you know, now they have great projects running. And I like to think that Pachacucha was able to provide a framework for some of that to happen, for people to be connected. And also what's quite special is we recorded all those talks and they're up on the Pachacucha website. Uh, There's actually an Inspire Christchurch channel, which is a channel dedicated to talks to inspire the rebuild of Christchurch. There's three other channels like that, one's for Japan and one's for Nepal. Mm. And so that's uh, and one for Ecuador, uh, and that's following major earthquakes in the last few years. So well, what we'll do is in the show notes we'll link to some of these yeah, websites, and, and that way people can find them easily. Some people are listening, going, "What's she talking about? What is Petra Kucha? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, do you think you could just give us a little overview about I can. what that is? Yes, my elevator pitch. So Petra Kucha, or if it's in Jap- uh, Japanese, it's Pachakucha. That means chit chat. It's the sound of chit chat. And uh, it's the name that we gave to our presentation format, which is 20 seconds of 20 images. So 20 images, each one is shown for 20 seconds and the images automatically advance. So you end it up with a talk that's six minutes and 40 seconds. It's very visually powerful. It's dynamic. It's a bit of a box of chocolates. You can get any type of Pachacucha talk. Pachacucha nights are events held around the world in currently 1,012 cities worldwide um, where people get together and they watch a collection of Pachacucha talks, 6 to 12 talks. Um, Anyone can present at a Pachacucha night. We try to have an emphasis on creativity, but it's not highly curated. It's not sort of top-down. It's very much, you know, your, your child could speak, your grandparent can speak. And we look at creativity very broadly. It's not just about an artist. It's about, you know, we had someone who does geocaching with letterboxes and she talked about her process there. And so you get quite random talks as well. So there's a certain structure involved. 
Um, but then there's a huge range of freedom exactly. in terms of so, the images that are chosen and the topics. Yeah, so the idea is that the actual presentation format is restrictive and that creates a huge amount of freedom. Mm -hmm. um, the images are, it's not a PowerPoint presentation, it's one single image. Um, we don't change how long it's shown for. You can't go back once you've started. You get stuck in that cadence and you keep going forward. But the result is quite fun. And the other thing is, is that uh, if the talk isn't very good, at least it's over in right. just over five minutes. <laughs> yeah. And I guess um, on an evening, you could either do it a themed way or you could have randomness in terms of presentations that are completely different. That's right. And one thing, we um, we hold an annual organizers conference once a year and uh, we meet people from all over the world who do Pachacucha Nights. And uh, when me and my co-organizer, Erica, from Christchurch went last year, we realized that every city does it differently. Right. So in Christchurch, we chose to have a different venue every time because our role was to activate spaces that are just coming back after the rebuild. Um, we also occasionally had a theme but sometimes we didn't it just r depended on whether we had um, a need for a theme so as an example the next Pachacucha night in Christchurch is part of the social enterprise world forum and that is about purpose yeah. and uh, the theme is you know people who are doing things in life with purpose and very much a focus on social enterprise but it's not always with a theme if it's not necessary right well I bought my ticket so I'll be there right I'll see you there <laughs> just thinking through we're you know, you've got your life there, Petra Kucha organizing here in Christchurch, and then you've got your private life in terms, I mean, in terms of the work that you're doing, um, working as a lawyer. And then you've relatively recently made a different move, mm -hmm. gone to Tokyo. Do you want to just talk us through what was going on there and, and sure. how that came about? Yeah. So as I said, I went to Tokyo last year for the annual organizers conference. And I, I mentioned that, uh, you know, Christchurch had this channel and, and the Inspire Christchurch channel and Tokyo and Christchurch obviously went through earthquakes very close together. Mm -hmm. So there's always been a connection between Tokyo and Christchurch in the way that uh, Pachacucha was very important to our city and they always felt very close to us. And so over the years, even though I hadn't met founders in person, we had communicated and they were keeping an eye on what we were doing here. Right. We arrived in Tokyo for the conference and... I guess we just sort of headed off with the founders and they really saw the important work we were doing in Christchurch. We were also very surprised to learn that Christchurch was one of the most successful Pachacucha night cities in the world. And I feel very proud about that. And I think that legacy continues. Uh, we have sellout events. We are financially sustainable as a nonprofit. We contribute back to the global community by donating $1 from every ticket sold to the Pachacucha Global Fund. And of course, we foster the social rebuild of the city. And so I started talking with them and they said, well, we almost didn't give you the license because we thought a lawyer couldn't be creative. And uh, obviously, they were, didn't regret that decision. Um, but they sort of started talking to me about my work. And I mentioned that I work with social enterprises and helping nonprofits commercialize to be sustainable and push forward values-based um, work. And they sort of said offhandedly, oh, well, you know, we'd love to sort of change our model to be more of a social enterprise and not just a non-profit reliant on funding. And we just agreed to stay in touch. And uh, then I was coming into 2017 thinking, I feel like I need a change. I was actually on vacation in Myanmar. I went to Myanmar for three weeks on my own over Christmas just to recharge. 
and uh, got a call from Tokyo saying, do you want to come be our director? And uh, I guess the timing was right for me and uh, I had to move pretty quickly, but I decided to relocate to Tokyo. And my role in Tokyo, aside from running global operations on the Petrocucha side, is to help them set up a commercial arm. And we're still very much in the infancy of this, but we are working on finding a way to create a business which will fund the Petrocucha movement so that it will continue, hopefully in perpetuity, but at least, you know, for the next 20, 30 years, as our co-founders, um, you know, who are full-time practicing architects, will move, um, you know, into retirement in the next 15 years and we want to sort of transition Pachacucha into a charity where it's held you know by a body bigger than just these two architects Mm. and can continue on beyond them um, while being able to earn its own income as well so what I'm working on now is actually creating a a company in the US which will create some Pachacucha based business of which one of the key beneficiaries will be you know the the Pachacucha non-profit that's fascinating and it, it sounds like it's quite a busy role again because you said you were going to Chicago to, to be looking into that, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, so it's actually a global role rather than just, you know, being based in Tokyo. It sounds I like actually, you get around uh, I don't that. do any work in Japan. I right. just live in Japan because that's where we're based. Um, I do some, that's not true, I do some minor corporate relations work. We work with some local corporations in Japan to help fund our operations short term while we get the business off the ground. Mm-hmm. And that's mostly doing corporate events, people who want to align with the Pachacucha brand, which is obviously a very creative global brand. But I don't think that's our long-term future. I think the problem with dealing with funders or sponsors or running corporate events is that you are not in control of your destiny. You must report to someone, you must do how they want it, and you lose your own creative control. And so that's why I often push for many charities if they want to be able to retain their own values or creative control they really need to earn their own money it's not for everyone and i think there are many charities which should still be publicly funded housing and healthcare being the two main ones i think for many others to be in control of their own money is really important yeah <clears throat> so that's what you're looking at now isn't it um, how you can help petrocucha get to that next stage exactly yeah, yeah. and just describe moving to tokyo mm. as you know i used to live in tokyo so i'm quite interested in your answers here just what, was, what were some of your impressions? You'd visited before, it sounds like. So having now lived there for, is it about six months or so? What are some of your observations or things that you didn't expect maybe? Or I was expecting it to be really difficult and very different. And having moved to France um, a few years ago without speaking French, I was very much aware of what it's like to live in a country where you don't speak the language and therefore simple tasks are difficult. I'd been to Japan once for two and a half weeks, of which one week was in Tokyo, and it had left a very deep impression for me. So I knew what I was getting into in a way. I immediately liked it, which I was surprised. I thought I would find it difficult, but I think you always have that honeymoon period when you first move. Uh, There are many things about the country which I think, uh, as a foreigner, make it very easy to be there. I found Many of the pressures that people in Japan feel are cultural and society places them on people. But as you're aware, when you're a foreigner, you sort of, you get written off a little bit like, oh, they're just a foreigner. That, you, yeah, the rules fi- don't apply the yeah, same way, Yeah, it's do more they? Forgivable, mm. uh, forgiving. So I find, uh, you know, the long work hours or the pressure to, you know, just spend all your time at work and to 
put your work in front of everything else doesn't quite apply to me because even though my work, I'm very passionate about it and I definitely work longer hours than I did here, even though as a lawyer you work long hours, I also understand that, that there are more important things in life. So aside from what I do with Pachacucha, which of course is bringing together my legal skills and helping a nonprofit, which I'm very grateful and, and privileged to be able to do, I can also be involved in different community groups and meet new people. I'm trying to do more work with social innovation in Japan. The language barrier is is definitely making it difficult, but there are many foreigners in Japan who want to be involved in that. Um, and also just enjoying the, the country, you know. Travelling in Japan is very easy. The bullet trains are very accessible. Um, everything is, is very easy to navigate and people are very kind. So mm. it's, I found that, you know, I'm having a lot more fun exploring and feeling a little bit more carefree because I don't have the pressures of society like a local would have. Mm. Well, I'm glad you're getting out of Tokyo as well because I lived in Japan for five years and I always found um, when I came back to New Zealand or wherever I was living, people had an impression that it was just a big city. But actually, there's beautiful mountains, there's beautiful rivers, there's beautiful lakes. You know, it's very similar to New Zealand in many yeah. ways if you get out of yeah the the central and city so. hiking is you know one of my hobbies i try once a month to get out it's not as easy as it is here and you have to definitely navigate a lot of areas where there's no signs in english but there are a lot of really great blogs and also a lot of expat communities where you know message boards and facebook groups about hiking so the japanese nature is actually really wonderful to spend time in there are similarities but there's also a lot of differences um there's wildlife that we don't have and yeah. you know there's shrines there's history there's human history which is very different from here so here in new zealand it feels like you could be the first person in the world to stumble upon that view because it feels very untouched and it's mm. not like that in japan i mean there are places but they're hard to get to mm. but um you know also the hot springs culture going mm. to the onsen after a long day of hiking is probably as close to heaven as you can get <laughs> that's great yeah well it sounds like you're embracing your new life in japan i'm trying to make the most of it yeah that's great i think it's so important wherever you are in the world to appreciate the the best parts of where you are because nowhere yeah. is perfect there's yeah. going to be things that maybe things could be done differently but that's the case wherever you go that's my my feeling and a lot of it is about your perception so i think if you spend a lot of time traveling and seeing other places then you can appreciate what's good about where you are mm. and let go a little bit about what's frustrating yeah and like you said at the beginning you know just appreciating new zealand more now probably having lived in a city of yeah. you know if you count all the way down to yokohama i think it's like 25 million like it's a lot of people isn't mm. it so you do definitely for me um you know Christchurch or Wellington or Auckland, they're they're big cities, but on a scale, you know, they're they're, they're empty. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're quite small, <laughs> and also it's so accessible. Like you say, you know, you could you can be skiing or you can be at the beach, and yeah, it's very easy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's pros and cons. I mean, I have to drive everywhere here in Christchurch. In Tokyo, I don't have a car, mm. but at the same time, it's. 10 minute drive to the beach to go for a surf whereas Tokyo it's two hours on the train and yeah. I'd take my board on the train so there are compromises but overall I think uh, for a city that size it can offer quite a good lifestyle it's just very chaotic compared to the laid-back lifestyle of New Zealand but that's why I want to have this place to come back to one day mm, yeah that's good and one of the questions I like to think through is if I could talk to my younger self 
what are some of the things that I might tell myself, you know, I don't know if you want to tell your eight-year-old self <laughs> or, you know, your 15-year-old self, putting on that lens of things that you've learned through your experiences. I mean, you've done a diverse range of things. What would you go back and tell that 15-year-old who's starting her first charity? Um, what are some of the lessons that you've learned that you think it would be helpful for, for yourself to know? That's a difficult one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have many regrets and I actually think I was lucky enough to do many things the right way. I have this attitude of I try to say yes as much as I can and, and follow opportunity where it goes. So if a door opens, I'll go through it. There might have been a lot of times, especially with the environmental movement, where I really, I actually got scared and stopped, be, you know, stopped being involved in that dialogue because climate change was so scary that it, it just, I couldn't do it anymore. So I moved to more, to smaller local issues which have those ripple effects. So I moved more to sort of social issues and, and creating a, a more sustainable lifestyle within your immediate community, which obviously ripples out to a larger scheme. But I think it's about, you know, filling that 15-year-old me with hope that all those little smaller projects did make a difference and continue to make a difference. And while we haven't solved by any means climate change, the, the rhetoric we see in New Zealand now is really heartwarming and that this country acknowledges that climate change is here and the younger generation is committed to, you know, doing something about it and is, is becoming very smart about it. I love seeing, you know, this movement with the Zero Carbon Act and Generation Zero and again they're lawyers and engineers and, and they're using their intellect to to inform the system, you know, they are also holding the keys and changing the system. I think I would sort of reassure my 15-year-old self that those little differences we're making are. And, um, I mean, my 8-year-old self, maybe 9-year-old self, became a vegetarian, still a vegetarian today. And so, so many people would say to me back then, oh, one person doesn't make a difference. And I, I would say to them, you did make a difference and you continue to. So mm. I think just knowing when you're younger and, and a lot of people tell you doing something different or, or fighting that fight as one person is, is not going to make a difference is so untrue because that ripple effect is huge. What I love about everything that you've said is that I can see that there were conscious decisions that you were making through your life to get involved and to, to, to help. And I think that's just something that... Yeah, we just need to encourage more people to yeah. to realize that they can make a difference, whatever it is, even yeah. if it's just volunteering to do, you know, some little task. They don't have to start a charity. That's yeah. okay. They can just get involved and, and contribute. The one thing I have noticed is there is a, a growing trend of sort of people doing... I guess it was labeled a while ago selectivism. So the idea of like, like this page, share this page mm -hmm. and you're making a difference and people get that instant gratification of, oh, well, I signed that petition and therefore I'm making a change. And I'm not saying those things aren't important, but they don't act in isolation. And so one thing I would say to, you know, maybe my 15-year-old friends is just signing that petition at the body shop is not enough. You know, it's saying no to that plastic bag, that makes a difference you know, trying to buy food with less packaging, that makes a difference. Mm. It doesn't feel like it, but those do. Mm. And I think just because you can't do everything doesn't mean you should do nothing. And right. that's a really big thing that I still practice now. I mean, even in Japan, 
you'll know they use plastic bags like they're going out of fashion it's mm. just so and everything it, is wrapped in plastic individually and it's apples or you know yeah, like it, it's all there isn't and it? It, that yeah. was very difficult i mean i also recently realized that it's their waste system is different you know they burn all their rubbish they don't have landfill but even the production of plastic is is bad for the environment mm. so even every time i say no to a plastic bag even though i know that there you know there are so many other bags being used i feel like those little things eventually the, that culture gets through and the more people see you saying no would do the same so these tiny little tasks they make a difference and same with meat i mean it's such a it's become a climate change issue which it wasn't when i was younger it was about um you know ethical farming practices or you know not killing animals but people say to me oh i couldn't be vegetarian because i love bacon too much i'm like that's fine but maybe just eat meat once a week and that makes a difference mm. so this idea that a lot of people think I can't do enough and therefore I, w- I will do nothing right. is, is probably the most frustrating thing for me. And uh, bringing it back to social enterprise, I think that's what I like about social enterprise is people say, well, charities are so inefficient or they're relying on funding and there's not enough money for them. And, you know, obviously everyone thinks capitalism worked for, uh, for society, but I think that we can take the system of capitalism and, and, put values at the bottom line instead of dollars at the bottom line and gets maybe not the same output but a better output you know more is not always more sometimes more creates many problems that cost a lot more to fix so i think that that's what i love about sort of saying it's it's those little things they add up it's working within our system we still need people pushing against the system on the outside but we need people in the system working with the system to change it as well. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. Thank you. Well, Ned, it's been great to have you come and join and share a bit of your journey. I've really enjoyed listening to you and and just hearing about uh, how you've been making choices through your life from that very young age to actually try to make the world a better place. So um, just want to say thanks for coming on and sharing a bit about what you've been involved in. And thank you for having this platform. It's great. I'm looking forward to hearing what other people share as well. And I think it's important that we do have more of a dialogue about this. As you could probably tell from that interview with Netta, I had a lot in common with her. And I really enjoyed hearing her perspective on being a lawyer who's also supporting social enterprises. Now, next week, we're going to be speaking with Leanne Dalzell, who's the mayor of Christchurch. And she's going to be sharing with us a lot about her life, how she got into politics, and what purpose means for her. Here's an extract from that interview. This is an opportunity to do things that you think you couldn't do before. It is a time where our city can really provide an uplift for those that are involved in social enterprise, for those that are involved in entrepreneurship, for those uh, that just want to give things a go. This is a place where we can literally try anything because we've been through this experience and it's kind of like, well, why not? Mm. And so we're, we're a city that, that has an incredible opportunity to help lead the way. I think you're really going to enjoy that conversation with Leanne, and I hope you can join me. In the meantime, if you enjoyed the content in this episode, please consider sharing it with someone, and also subscribe to make sure you don't miss future episodes. Until next time.